Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. This past summer, I took a continuing education class with my seminary. We looked at the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, an early martyr of the church. He was led on to Rome by a group of soldiers who would feed him to the wild beasts because his Christian faith was contrary to the religion of the empire. Before his death, Ignatius penned seven letters to various churches, encouraging them in their faith despite his persecution. And one thing that really struck me about his letters was how Ignatius talked about discipleship. After years of serving the church as a bishop and faithfully holding true to his Christian faith on the journey to his death, after all this, Ignatius wrote, only now am I beginning to be a disciple. I don't know about you, but a statement like that really surprises me. If a Christian bishop is willing to face his own martyrdom, I'd assume he would have been living as a disciple for quite a while. Doesn't discipleship begin with baptism or with faith? Not for Ignatius. For Ignatius, discipleship begins with the cross. For him, it is only when we pick up our cross and become willing to part with everything, even life itself, for the sake of the gospel, that we truly begin to live as followers of Christ. It's in light of a saint like Ignatius that Jesus is teaching this morning on hating our loved ones, hating life itself, bearing our cross, and renouncing all that we have can begin to make sense as lived experience. Jesus' teaching this morning strikes us as very harsh, but it begins to make more sense when we consider the freedom, peace, and happiness which lies on the other side of the radical detachment that he preaches. What I want to explore with you this morning is the total self-renunciation that Christ calls us to and how we can begin to live that out how, like St. Ignatius, we may begin to be true disciples. Our gospel begins with Jesus seeing that there are great crowds following him. There are many here who follow him with their feet, but how many are willing to follow his journey to the cross in their hearts? Jesus sees the crowd, and he sees you and me there, fickle as we are, with a gulf existing between who we are and who we wish to be. He sees that our hearts are lukewarm and at best halfway devoted to our master. It's to lackluster devotees like you and me that our Lord gives this message of what following him really entails. Jesus' teaching begins with family, with our loved ones, because those are the people we often cling to the most tightly and are sometimes tempted to love above God. Christ calls us to love him even more. Normally, Christ commands us to love family, to honor father and mother, to love our neighbor, even to love our enemies. But this morning, he calls us to something he refers to as hate. He uses this word hate to shake us out of our complacency and self-delusion that we can have any relationship that trumps our love for him. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but apparently this word has something comparative about it. It doesn't always mean simply despising, but choosing something else instead. To hate in this sense means to prefer something else, to esteem this option less. It means when faced with the options of family and God, were these to ever be at odds, that we would choose God. That is what hatred means in this context. Abraham responded to this call when he showed his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. Although he had placed his expectations and hopes for the future on this child, he was willing to part with him trusting in God's will for his life even apart from Isaac. 
And of course, in Abraham's detachment, God ends up giving Isaac back to him, sparing the child's life. The boy was no longer the recipient of all Abraham's hopes and dreams, but God was. And with this detachment, Isaac was received back as a gift. I imagine that Abraham's relationship with his son was very different from that point on. Realizing that his trust belongs to God alone, Abraham was probably able to love Isaac better for who he was, as Isaac, instead of loving him for the role that he was playing in Abraham's life. Abraham perhaps went from seeing Isaac as the focal point of all his hopes for the future and the child on whom he was pinning all his expectations to being an end in himself. That's what the power of letting go can mean for the Christian. What at first might feel like hate or preferring less, letting go of our expectations for a person and realizing that our true happiness is not in them but in God, this exercise can actually turn into a deeper love and a much stronger relationship. This is what the spiritual writers refer to as detachment and how it can mean a more mature form of love. Jesus tells us in today's passage that this is our task with everyone we love, to let go, to hate in that sense, in order to love God first and thereby love the person even better for who they really are before God instead of who they are to us. Only when we let go of our own expectations for a person can we begin to love them as God loves them. Jesus says that we must let go of our family in this sense of detachment, and ultimately that we must hate our life itself. In other words, there's nothing that we can cling to. We must be willing even to lay down our lives if we truly want to follow Christ, which is our happiness. This is the hatred for life, so to speak, which Ignatius had in his martyrdom. He says in his letter to the church in Rome, even though I am still alive, I am passionately in love with death as I write to you. This may appear to us as hatred of one's own life, but to Ignatius it meant that his true life was just beginning. Life begins when a person lets go of all that they cling to and begin to experience the freedom of divine love. God's service is perfect freedom in the sense that when all our expectations for happiness are directed toward Him and all other things are loved only in reference to Him, at that point we have nothing to lose. We feel free because we're united to our beloved whose will comes to pass in every moment. This is the happiness which cannot be lost. But if we mix our happiness up with a particular person, uh, we'll be afraid that they might leave us or that their feelings towards us might change. Or if we confuse our happiness with the things that money can buy, our anxiety will track the ups and downs of the stock market. Or if we confuse our happiness with our retirement plans, we won't know what to do when life gets in the way. See, each of these loves we would refer to as attachments, and they prevent us from becoming truly happy because they're all unreliable, they're all fleeting, and they're all limited. It's only when we begin to let go of these attachments and teach our hearts to find their true homes in God that we will experience the peace which passeth understanding and the freedom and lightness that comes from a happiness which depends no longer on externals but only on the limitless love of God, which is unfailing. This is the cross which Christ calls us to bear. It is hatred as far as the ego is concerned, which clings to, to family and possessions with the hopes of finding fulfillment there. But detachment is a better love. When, for instance, we love our spouse in a more detached way, we'll no longer demand that um, they be who we want them to be, comparing them to this standard that we have for them in our head. We'll begin to love them as they really are. 
where when we love our parents in a detached way, caring for them in their old age will no longer feel like a burden, but will prove to be a sort of training ground for virtue to make us fit for heaven. Or when you love your children or siblings in a detached way, it means seeing them as they are, not for who they were when they were young. This detachment is death to the ego, but is life to the soul. Such a person can say with St. Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This verse, Galatians 2.20, was my father's favorite Bible verse. And he died in such a way that it seems that he actually lived this out. Uh, My mother was with him um, when he was dying, and she said that in his final breath, uh, she saw a smile on his face. My dad was able to hold the world loosely, uh, willing to let go in order to receive God on the other side. See, this is a picture of what detachment can look like, the freedom and peace that it can bring to us when our one true love is considered not as lying behind us in our death, but as lying on ahead, um, waiting for us in God. Truly, God waits for us on the other side of the cross. Now, compare this example of dying to that of my grandfather. He was also a Christian, but seemed in his old age to really be clinging to life and uh, to be one of those people that you call a fighter. See, he chose to go through chemo at the age of 80, and that's what ended up killing him. He never acknowledged that he was about to die. Uh, He seemed to be in total denial, forgetting that he could trust in the happiness in God which was waiting for him on the other side of his letting go. He He was grasping at life, not realizing that his true life had to be attained by letting go. Each of us in our death will have everything removed from us. It's up to us whether we will be prepared to let go and embrace the heaven that lies waiting for us, or if we'll be clinging to this life, holding on to it like it's our only hope. For the person who has clung to life and not borne his cross, the letting go process will feel to that person like life is being pried out of their hands. But for the person well-practiced in detachment, loving God and letting all other loves fall into their proper order, this person will begin to experience heaven even here on earth. This person has died already and is now living the the heavenly life here on earth with all the freedom, lightness, and peace which that entails. This is the way of discipleship, to follow in Christ's cross. Are we ready to look at what our Savior demands of us? Or will we be like a man building a tower who has not counted the cost, and after laying the foundation is mocked for not being able to finish it? Or will we be like the king who went out to war without considering his disadvantage and needs to seek for peace? What is holding us back? Where in your heart are you clinging to things that you think will make you happy, but which you will ultimately have to let go of? Uh, Two tests to determine these attachments of ours would be to consider, first, what do I sin for? And second, what do I get anxious over? The answers to these questions will show us the loves which we put in between ourselves and God, the people or experiences or things on which we misplace our expectations for happiness to the detriment of our true life and fulfillment in God. Can we find the places where our devotion stops short, and can we ruthlessly let go of our attachments for the sake of this greater love? This fleeting life is like a voyage to heaven. And when a storm comes, are we not required to jettison the cargo? If you saw someone throwing all his goods overboard, you'd think, man, he really hates that stuff. It seems like hatred, but he's jettisoning the things that weigh him down because his life depends on it. 
he prefers his life over his possessions. Given possessions and life, he appears to hate the one and love the other. What would it benefit him to gain the whole world and yet to lose his soul? Or would he rather go down with the ship clinging to his possessions? This is the situation confronting each of us. It's time to jettison the cargo. It's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Not because wealth is bad, but because the wealthy are often the most attached, clinging to too much. We must throw overboard the things that weigh us down so that our wills can be free to love God with singleness of heart. It is better to enter into life with one eye or with one hand than with the whole body to be cast into hell. We must in our hearts let go of all our, all our attachments like we hated them because our spiritual life actually depends on it. For many of us, this may be a lifelong task. For many of us, detachment will only begin to take place on the deathbed when we realize that we're forced to let go of the goods of this world. But for those who earlier let go of their attachments voluntarily, releasing in their hearts all that they've been grasping at, these Christians can begin to experience heaven even here upon the earth. They have nothing to fear because they're in lasting possession of their happiness and joy, being united with God inwardly and on fire with His love. They do not sin against their loved ones or neighbors because they have no attachments worth sinning over, for they love all things in their proper order and proportion with God at the top. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, life eternal. Such a life is lived in direct communion with God, as there is nothing in the heart to separate such a person from Him. This is our hope and our goal, and perhaps then we may, with Ignatius, begin to be true disciples. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.